Human behavior is fascinating and frustrating. On the one hand, we say that we don't like for people to tell us what to do or to think. But on the other hand, we are easily swayed by public opinion. We don't like authority, but we also don't like to go against the grain of society. We don't like to be seen as different, as out of step, as being on the wrong side of history. All across the country, various local, state, and congressional elections are being held this Tuesday. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. People don't like being told what to do, after all. No, I bring up the elections because uh, one of the strangest findings of political scientists is that people often vote not for which candidate or which party they think will best serve in the office but based on who they think is going to win the election. It's known as the bandwagon effect. People want to be able to say that they voted for the winner, even though our democratic form of government is entirely dependent upon people not doing such a foolish thing. The whole system collapses if large numbers of people vote contrary to what they actually believe is best for the city or the state or the nation. But this is the nature of mankind. We are authority-averse bandwagon jumpers. What about you? Why do you do what you do? I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 11, verse 27. You can find it on page 48 in the second half of the Pew Bible. I'm going to begin by reading the first six verses. Mark chapter 11, verse 27. Hear the word of the Lord to you. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? Now they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let us pray. Father, give us the ears to hear your voice speaking through your word, and give us the hearts to believe and to gladly submit to your authority. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, on a Sunday, Jesus and his disciples completed their long, circuitous journey from Galilee in the north down to Jerusalem in the south for the annual celebration of the Passover meal. We refer to it as as Palm Sunday because as Jesus rode into the city atop of a donkey, the people spread palm branches on the road before him and shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Quoting from Psalm 118, verses 25 through 26. 
Then on the next day, on Monday, Jesus entered the temple courts and turned over the currency exchange tables and the chairs of the people selling animals for sacrifice. And he accused the religious leaders there of having made this house of prayer into a den of robbers. That was Monday. It's now Tuesday, and he has made his way back into Jerusalem from where he was residing outside of the city. Verse 27, and, and as he is walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders come to him, and they say to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? To do these things. What, what things are they talking about? Well, most immediately, having made such a scene in the temple on the day before, having exerted such unrivaled authority over the people of God, having condemned the lesser authorities by citing God's condemnation of their forefathers in Isaiah and Jeremiah. But then the day before that, having openly declared himself to be the long-promised Messiah as he symbolically rides into Jerusalem atop a donkey in fulfillment of the messianic promises of Zechariah 9. And now, having returned to the temple to, to further teach and preach about the kingdom of God. Both Luke and, and Matthew, in their parallel accounts of this event, they both note that Jesus was already in the process of teaching publicly when these men approached him and interrupted his teaching. So who are these men? The chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Well, these are the, the three different groups that comprise the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish Supreme Court, if you will, the religious officials of this occupied nation. Now, it's not likely that all 71 members of the Sanhedrin approached Jesus in the temple courts on this Tuesday. It's not necessarily the case that the, the official high priest, Caiaphas, was present, or that his father, Annas, who was still referred to as the high priest by many, was present. Maybe, but, but not necessarily. The, the language used here could, and, and most assume does, refer to an official delegation of the Sanhedrin that comes to Jesus challenging his authority, seeing themselves as the highest authority in all of these religious matters. Who gave you this authority, they asked, not looking for an answer as they, they know that they didn't grant him this authority and thus he therefore has no authority to do what he's doing. So they think. This is, this is not a, a harmless squabble. These men have the power to end him. And more than that, Jesus has already announced that that is exactly what they will achieve. Back in chapter 8, verse 31, the moment after Peter rightly confessed Jesus to be the Christ, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by whom? By the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, this very group of men. He must suffer many things, be rejected by them, and be killed. And after three days, rise again. This is their first major step, step in attempting to assert their authority over Jesus. So they ask him, by what authority do you do what you do? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. 
Of course, the the baptism of John refers to the entire public ministry of John the Baptist as he, quote, appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Chapter 1, verse 4. Jesus is asking these men, by what authority did John do what John did? Was John's ministry from man, meaning of of human origin, or was it from heaven, of divine origin? Was John a prophet sent from God, or was he a phony? There's no confusion here. Jesus is saying that if Jesus' forerunner was sent from God, then so too Jesus was sent from God, and in no need of authorization from a council of mere men. Here stands this this formal delegation from the religious authorities, claiming to be the arbiters of truth, claiming to be the final authority. And yet, when presented with a simple question, they they have to put up one finger as they huddle together to figure out how they're going to respond to this carpenter from Galilee. It's a pathetic sight, and it only gets more pathetic as it unfolds. Verse 31, and they discussed it with one another saying, oh, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? Why then did you not believe John? But if we say from man, well, they were afraid of the people. The people all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And so much for being the authorities. Like the, the slimy politicians they are, they, they seek to evade the question by pleading ignorance. Just tell the truth. Speak up. You claim to be the spiritual shepherds of God's people. Shepherd them. Call out John and Jesus as being false teachers if that's what you believe them to be. But these leaders won't do that. Why not? Because they were afraid of the people they were supposed to be leading. And so they they abdicate their responsibilities before God. They become subservient to popular opinion. The approval of others became their master. You can't serve two masters. It's either God or it's people. Now, you might say, didn't Jesus just evade their question by asking a question? Well, no. Jesus made the truth plain, both in his immediate reply here and even more so in the immediately following parable. Jesus wasn't evading truth. He was exposing error and exerting his divine authority. And so he says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Like these men, are you you quick to fear the crowd and slow to fear the creator? Who is your functional authority? God or people? Contrast these men with Jesus. In the face of certain death, Jesus speaks truth, showing us what it looks like to answer to a higher authority than to people, no matter the cost. This question, uh, by what authority do you do what you do, it was asked to the first disciples regarding their preaching of the gospel. As they proclaimed Jesus to be the Christ, they were drugged before this same council. They were charged to be silent or else. But Peter and John answered them, 
Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Acts chapter 4. And the opposition from the political and the religious authorities has rarely ceased for Christ's followers. Last week, we celebrated Reformation Sunday, the 505th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. This question, by what authority do you do what you do? It was asked of Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms in 1521. And with his life on the line, though it was providentially spared, he replied, My conscience is captive to the word of God. Thus I cannot and will not recant. He was largely echoing the, the same words of, of John Huss in his trial before the Roman authorities more than a hundred years earlier. Naked, with his neck bound by a chain to a stake, with the wood piled up to his chin, John Huss was given one last opportunity to recant. And Huss replied, God is my witness that the principal intention of my preaching and of all my other acts or writings was solely that I might turn men from sin. And in that truth of the gospel that I wrote, that I taught, that I preached in accordance with the sayings and expositions of the holy doctors, I am willing gladly to die today. And so the Roman Catholic religious authorities burned him alive because his allegiance was to a higher authority than them. It was to the word of God. Today is the 27th annual International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And we remember the hundreds of millions of faithful Christians who are regularly challenged with this same question, by what authority do you do what you do? By what authority do you renounce the worship of pagan gods and deceased ancestors? By what authority do you refuse to worship the Communist Party in control? By what authority do you refuse to embrace the ways of Islam? While nowhere near as costly for us is the question, by what authority do you refuse to join the sexual and gender revolution? By what authority do you claim that there is a right way and a wrong way to define what a man is or what a woman is or what marriage is? By what authority do you speak out against the slaughter of the innocents? declaring that it is murder to snuff out the life of a preborn baby by the authority of the Word of God. You cannot serve two masters. Fear God or fear people. Jesus continues His response in the next verse, chapter 12, verse 1. And He began to speak to them in parables. And we have the parable of the tenants. Now, as I read this parable... For the first time through, try to focus on the picture that is being painted with the words, not on what it symbolizes. Focus on the picture itself, and then we'll deal with what it symbolizes. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around that vineyard to keep it safe from predators. And he dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. So everything was in place to create some fine wine. Nothing was lacking but the labor. And he leased it to tenants. And he went into another country. When the season came, that is the season for fruit, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Whereas Matthew records it, 
He sent a, a servant to the tenants to get his fruit. And they, the tenants, took the servant that was sent to them and beat him and sent him away empty-handed, just that the owner of the vineyard received no fruit from his vineyard. And the owner sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. It would seem that the tenants assumed that the presence of the son meant that the owner of the vineyard had died, and that if they could get rid of the son as well, then perhaps they could claim the vineyard for themselves. Verse 8, and they took him, the beloved son, and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard, who turns out to still be alive, do? He has sent servant after servant to collect the fruit that is rightfully his, but these unruly tenants have beaten and or killed them all including the owner's own son. What will he do? There's only one possible response. Everyone can see that. Jesus says, He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. To others who will produce the fruit that he rightly demands and deserves. Upon hearing that the owner will, will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others, Luke records something that Mark doesn't. Luke records that some in the crowd, presumably from this delegation from the Sanhedrin, said out loud, surely not. Why would they respond that way to this parable? Of course the tenants will be killed. Of course the vineyard will be taken away from them and given to others. Why would there be any objection to that? Well, because they understood what the parable was symbolizing. The vineyard. It clearly symbolizes the land and people of Israel, with the owner of the vineyard being God himself. This same imagery was used by God in Isaiah chapter 5, condemning the failures of previous generations of his people to produce the fruit of righteousness and warning of a coming destruction. God said things like this through Isaiah chapter 5, verse 4, What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled upon. I will make it a waste. And so the owner of the vineyard, God did, as Jerusalem and the first temple were destroyed in 586 B.C., and the people were taken captive into Babylon. These religious leaders of Israel standing before Jesus hundreds and hundreds of years later, they understand that Jesus is condemning them for likewise having failed to bear the fruit of righteousness that God demands. The wicked tenants in the parable represent these false shepherds to whom he's speaking. The servants that were sent to them represent the prophets of God who they rejected and killed. Not just in prior generations, but in this very generation, for a Jewish king had just beheaded John the Baptist. 
a prophet sent from God. As Jesus lamented elsewhere, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. And of course, the beloved son of the owner in the parable is the beloved son of God, who is speaking this condemnation upon his people. For the fourth time in Mark's gospel, Jesus here foretells his impending death that will come at the hands of those to whom he is now speaking. Now in the parable, the tenants kill the son, thinking that they will then be able to claim the inheritance for themselves. What is that? It's a picture of wanting to claim the kingdom without having to bend the knee to the king. They're seeking to do away with the one who has openly cursed their fruitless faith and exposed their false securities. They don't like that. Rather than responding to the prophet of God in humble repentance, they have responded in murderous rage at this threat upon their influence among people, showing that they were living for the things of this world rather than for the things of God. They were living for the praise of men rather than for the praise of God. And with the destruction of that second temple in 70 AD, a generation later, God did come and destroy these tenants. And he did give the vineyard to others. Not so much meaning the physical land of Israel, but rather the eternal kingdom that the vineyard always represented. As Jesus continues, Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Again, these verses are from Psalm 118. And Jesus here in Mark chapter 12 gives us the proper interpretation of that Old Testament passage. He is the stone that was rejected. And the builders are the religious leaders of Israel. So consider the word picture. They were seeking to build a temple and a kingdom. They are the builders. This temple, the second temple the King Herod began to build many years earlier, it still wasn't finished being built at this time. It wouldn't be finished being built for another 30 some odd years. They are the builders who are building what? They're building a temple and a kingdom. But upon encountering this stone that didn't seem to fit with their vision of their kingdom, well, they do. They toss that stone aside only for a new temple, a new kingdom to arise from that rejected stone, entirely separate from the temple and kingdom that the builders had been building. Though they killed the beloved son, on the third day he rose in victory over sin and death, so that all who place their trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins are counted as being part of a new people of God, as co-heirs of the eternal vineyard of God the heavenly kingdom yet to come. And Jesus is the foundation stone of the new temple. With each person who trusts in him added as a, another stone upon the top of that indestructible foundation. This is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. But it was not marvelous in the eyes of these leaders. Verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. Yeah, yeah, key insight. So they left him 
and went away. It's always a sad sight to see people walk away from Jesus, still enslaved to their sin. In asking them, have you not read? He's saying that they were without excuse for having not responded rightly to the word of God spoken through the prophet. From Moses to John the Baptist to the beloved son sent to them. We are no less accountable for knowing and for responding to God's word spoken through the prophets. Have you not read the closing verses of Matthew's gospel? where our Lord declares, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. All authority had been given to Christ, and this is his command. So by what authority Are you doing otherwise? By what authority are you prioritizing other things? Is that not an attempt to assert your authority over Jesus, just like these leaders as they sought to claim the inheritance of the kingdom without bending the knee to the king? Go and make disciples. Verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Now, these are two very different factions within the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees were the most respected teachers of the law of Moses, and they did not hide their disdain for the Roman occupation of Israel. The Herodians, on the other hand, were political figures who had cozied up with Herod's family and thus with the Romans. The Pharisees and the Herodians were enemies of one another. But they had unified in this unholy alliance for the sake of destroying their shared enemy, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 14, and they came and said to Jesus, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but but truly teach the way of God. They, of course, don't mean what they say. They've come to trap him in his talk, Mark says. Luke spells out that they were pretending to be sincere. They think that their flattery is going to help disguise their intentions to trap him. That he'll be so puffed up by praise that he'll think their question is sincere and walk into the trap. But it's precisely because Jesus is true and that he does not care about anyone's opinion of him, is not swayed by appearances, and truly teaches the way of God. It's because of that that flattery couldn't possibly have any effect on him. But these men wrongly assume that it will because they wrongly assume that he is like them, easily taken in by flattery, more concerned for the praise of men than for the praise of God. So they flatter him, and then they try to set the trap. They ask him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So what's the trap? Well, the people of Israel hated paying these taxes imposed by Rome. It was a constant reminder of their subjugation to the Roman authorities. So if Jesus says, yes, pay the tax, 
Well, he risks the people turning on him. And if he says, no, don't pay the tax, well, these wicked men will turn him over to the Roman authorities and charge him with sedition, which is what they did. They appear to have taken a page out of Jesus' playbook, having just been caught on the horns of a dilemma in the previous exchange. But, but Jesus is not afraid to go against the masses. They were, he's not. He's not afraid to go against the masses any more than he's afraid to go against the, the religious and political leaders. The question that arises from the text is this, whom do you fear? Whom do you fear? In applying this to our own context, it's not so much the fear of, of tangible harm that people may cause us if we go against them, but rather it's the fear of the disapproval of others, the fear of upsetting others. How much of this, does this fear of man control your life? Think about your home life, your work life in your workplace. Think about your life in your neighborhood, in your church, in your family. Whose favor are you most afraid to lose? Whose bad side are you most afraid to get on? Out of fear for what others will think, do you walk on eggshells and refrain from saying what needs to be said? Or from making the decisions that need to be made? Or from standing up for what God has clearly spoken in His Word? The question, whom do you fear, is the same as the question, whom do you most love? Love and fear are two sides of the same coin. Our greatest fears reveal our greatest love. Whose favor do you most seek? That of God or that of others? Whom are you most concerned about pleasing? God or others? The Apostle John tells us that these Pharisees, quote, loved the glory that came from man more than they loved the glory that comes from God. So they feared man more than they feared God. To grow in, in Christ-likeness means growing and not caring about what anyone's opinion is except God's. Verse 15. They sought to flatter him, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this on the coin? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. The things that are Caesar's are the things that bear Caesar's image. So give them to him. Pay the taxes imposed on you, even by blasphemous, wicked, oppressive rulers but render to God the things that bear His image. What is it that bears the image and likeness of God? You do. Of all the things that God has recreated, humans alone uniquely bear God's image and likeness. Again, it's a question of authority. Yes, Caesar exercised a measure of authority over them, as the United States government exercises a measure of authority over us. 
But that authority pales in comparison to the authority of our Creator over every aspect of our lives. So render to Caesar the piece of metal that bears his image, and render to God the soul that bears his. Render not just your possessions, render your whole being, your whole life. It's a question of authority. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word by which you speak to us. By the power of the Holy Spirit here with us, free us from the fear of man, that we may no longer seek the approval of others more than we seek the approval of you. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.